tonight on Arena. Finian Collins on his new role as Artistic Director of the Dublin International Piano Competition and we assess all six books on the shortlist for this year's Booker Prize. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The Dublin International Piano Competition was established in 1987, ranked among the best piano competitions in the world, bringing a dazzling array of talent to Dublin every three years and inspiring generations of Irish musicians and audiences. Irish pianist Finneen Collins has become only the second artistic director of the Dublin International Piano Competition, succeeding one of the founders of the competition, pianist John O'Connor. This Friday, November the 24th, Finneen and the Dublin International Piano Competition will present its 2018 winner, Korean pianist Se-Yoon Chon, at a recital in the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleer. I'm delighted to be joined in studio this evening by both Finneen and Se-Yoon. Uh, first of all, to, to yourself, Finneen, here you are um, as the artistic director uh, following on from John O'Connor. Those are big shoes. That, that you will be filling. They are indeed. And he, as you say, he, he's been doing it for so long, you mm. know, so and it's an honour to be to be nominated and to be appointed as the second artistic director of the uh, competition. I suppose it's, you could say, an, also no massive surprise because John had said to me, you know, many years ago that he would like me to be the person to mm. take to take on that role. And I've been involved with the competition for so many years in so many different roles. So it's something that I feel that I know very well. But it's a really nice thing to be involved with. I have to say. And I guess because you have been involved in it for so many years, you, you, you possibly have been looking and thinking, oh, there are things that if, if I do get my hands on the, the steering wheel, there are certain things that, that I would like to do just to, to tweak things and change them slightly. Well, exactly. And it's not that I wanted to make any great mm. massive changes. But yeah, as you say, to put to, uh, you know, add a few different elements to it, to tweak it, to few, to yeah, just to do a few different things to, uh, with the competition uh, and to keep it relevant and to... It's supposed to bring new life into it as well. Yeah, there are, there are specifics about the, the the various pieces that we played in different rounds. And we might come back to that. But mm. one thing that I really did notice is the presence of chamber music and playing a chamber piece. Is, mm. So is the idea that the finalists are at some point along the way, the finalists will now have to play with a chamber ensemble as well as they would do if they get to the finals playing a concerto with a with an orchestra. Well, that's it exactly. It'll be in the semi-final round. So there'll be eight semi-finalists will uh, not only have to perform a solo recital of 40 minutes, but they will also have to play a piano quintet with the Contempo Quartet mm. from Galway. And they'll have a choice of uh, three amazing qu- uh, quintets, the Brahms, the Schumann and the Dvorak, three of the classics of the repertoire. And uh, I think that's a really good test, you know, for a yeah. young musician to see how they interact. They'll only have two rehearsals with the quartet. So how quickly can they get it together? Um, how, what kind of a performance can they can they bring uh, to it? It's very different to, to perform chamber music to, uh, compared to a solo performance so or, I think or it, indeed or indeed a concerto with and a then indeed on, yeah. so then yeah. with the uh, three lucky finalists will get to play with the National Theatre of Yorkshire then as a, so you and, um, yeah. wh- you've, you've heard of that addition of the, uh, the the chamber ensemble in the semi-finalist round are you kind of relieved you didn't have to do that when you won <laughs> back in 2018 <laughs> Well, I bet lots of uh, participants will enjoy the chamber music since mm. our job is such a solitary practicing in the practice room for mm. a long time. So we love rehearsal, ensemble, collaborations. Yeah, and particularly in, yeah. in chamber music, it is that it's a kind of conversation. I know with an orchestra, it's a conversation, but there's a lot of people talking when the orchestra are there. With a chamber ensemble, it's it's a much more intimate type of form and maybe a, a possibility for a much more personal expression in some ways. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it really requires more skills of negotiation between each player. Yes. Because the orchestra is more like 88%. And the conductor and you. So yes, it's a little different setup. Yeah, mm. it's, a, it's, it's a different, it's yeah. a different dynamic. Yeah. Before uh, winning the the competition back in 2018, do you remember that moment? Do you yes. remember what what it felt like? I was so happy and uh, winning the uh, Dublin International Piano Competition first prize was a significant milestone for me as a young artist. Uh, it not only brought a sense of accomplishment, but also opened the doors in my career, providing. Really valuable exposure and opportunities like my debut at the Carnegie, my debut at the Gavant House, and I was invited to very BFS brand. Lots of opportunities. Mm. Yeah. So winning winning the competition really did open a kind of an, an internet. And I suppose that's the that's the strength of the the competition and its reputation. Finning it is that it does open those doors that Seyun has just described to us. Places like the Car- like Carnegie Hall, Absolutely. like the Gavant House. Mm. I think it's important that a competition does as much as it, as it can for its winners in a crowded world. Um, so we try to present our winners um, in engagements uh, following mm. the the, um, the competition. And in fact, the concert on Friday in the pavilion is, is just that because Sagan lost out on, on many performances because of COVID, of, of course, course, which hit yeah. short, shortly after he won the competition in Dublin. Um, and so we do. It, I mean, obviously, it's important for the for the winner to to then take the, the the engagements and to make them develop further and to go on with the career as best they can. But it, we do think of it as, as an important mm. part of our responsibility to really help them get on that international performance. I, I noticed um, from from the uh, program that you're playing at the the concert in the uh, in the upcoming concert in the Pavilion, Seyun, the Liszt uh, Sonata in B minor. Yeah. That's one where you want to have all of your hands and all of your fingers in yes. total action. This is a big romantic piano piece. Yeah, it's a such a complex structure piece of half an hour long. However, if you look at closely, there's only a few materials that he used throughout the half an hour. So it's a fascinating piece to learn and also share on the stage. And he he it, it, it's a isn't it a three movement work? Yeah, that that that. They one movement runs into the other. There isn't any moment when you can kind of sit in a right. Okay, I'll I'll gather my thoughts again and I'll move into movement <laughs> two. Now. It it starts and it keeps going. Yeah, it's continuous music. Yeah, uh, how how much of a challenge is that? So you must feel the end when you play the first note, and then you drive the way through. You're not like. Um, there's no break, as you said, mm. no intermission between the, not intermission, but breaks. Between yeah, movement. even just so a pause for just, breath. Yeah, there's, everything is keep continuously moving and evolving and developing. And I, I guess then that, that that challenge is play note yeah. one. You can't think about note 1057. You must think about note two after a while. And it's not note two, it's several notes together, yeah. obviously. Let's have a let's have a listen to a little bit of the, the list work. And this, in fact, I think it's from about, it's, it's into the middle of the work is the section that you sent to us, Finine. Mm. And um, this is you playing Seyun and, and quite the romantic piece, as I say. Just 
listening to that. In fact, that is that is list um, um, the piece called Mazeppa, uh, very similar to the sonata in B minor that you're playing on on the at the, at the concert in the pavilion. But what strikes me as I listen to, to that is it almost feels at times, say you, as if there are two pianists there. You know that there are four hands, not just two. He list demands a lot from the player. Yeah, it's a. Uh... He's, uh, it's more like orchestration that uh, he's asking for a pianist to achieve. Mm, such a range yeah. of colors as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then it can be so lyrical, you've got a lovely melody with the compliment and suddenly it can just change and become, you know, crash bang, octaves, dramatic. It's, it, it, there's everything in Liszt really. Yeah, I often think with Liszt, you really need to have long hair. <laughs> so that you can flick your head back in that romantic fashion, because he really—I mean—that's the nature of who he was. In oh, some yes. ways, that big yeah. romantic Such pianist, a performer, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and 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 the virtue, the virtuosic performance as well. Absolutely. I I notice also that you're playing Beethoven's Sonata in E flat. The the uh, number it's, it's number seven that you're playing. The Sonata number seven that you're playing. Yeah, oh, Opus seven number four. Opus seven yeah. number four. Yeah, yeah. There we go. So yeah. <laughs> I thought it was Sonata number seven. So I'm going to present you with a different Sonata <laughs> as well. However. Uh, it, it will it will display something because you've chosen Finney to add this Beethoven aspect into the work as well into, into the, the competition into the competition Indeed. I beg, I beg yeah. your pardon so all, over the history of the competition it's been very very free for competitors to play pretty much exactly what they wanted mm. apart from the contemporary Irish piece and I was thinking about this but also thinking about John O'Connor and his huge contribution to the competition as founder, artistic director, chairman of the jury. You know, he did so much for the competition over so many decades. And I thought, well, John is linked, as everybody knows, to Beethoven, his career. Mm. Uh, you know, he, he's recorded all 32 sonatas, Exactly, I think, the, 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 the concertos. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, he's synonymous with Beethoven in many ways. And I just thought, I also feel that Beethoven is an excellent test of a, of a, of a competitor. You know, you need a certain amount of musical intelligence to play Beethoven, to make it coherent. Um, there's just something about it, you know, if you can play a Beethoven sonata and play it well, uh, I really respect you as, a, as an artist. So I think it's a very good test. Uh, and so I've decided that, yeah, competitors will have to play um, a solo work by Beethoven. And there's a list uh, in the in the rules, which we just put onto our website this evening. Um, and they can do that in any of the solo rounds of the competition. So right? they can do it at any point, but yeah. they must do a solo piece. So that's exactly. essentially a sonata that they will a have sonata to... or a set of variations. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they have, tells. Right, yeah. they have a, yeah. a couple of choices, choices. there. Yeah. I want to listen. I'm kind of glad now that it's the Opera 7 number four that you're playing because I want to play Joan O'Connor playing Sonata number seven. No, very good. Uh, uh, just a, a little section of the minuet because it's such a different style from the list that we've just heard. Mm. I think it, it gives us a it gives us a sense uh, really of the kind of range that will be demanded mm. of the pairs and the range that say the range that say you will yeah. display in the Pavilion Theatre. This is the minuet movement from the piano, piano Sonata number seven with John O'Connor performing. So that's a little flavour of John O'Connor playing the Sonata Number no. Seven of Beethoven, different from the one that say you would be playing. And you're kind of relieved you were saying to be saying <laughs> that I didn't play the one that you would be playing in the pavilion might put too much pressure on. But listening to the the it's the elegance, and I know there are many colours across the Beethoven Sonata, but there's a kind of a classical elegance because he he really spans that moment between the classical period and the romantic period. Yeah. That's what Beethoven does. And I guess that's the challenge for the pianist. Yeah, yeah. The, the challenge of the my sonata number four per seven is that the harmonic movement is almost very slow compared to Liszt. For example, there's just 
very standstill of the one harmony, but he used different techniques. So for me to hold the audience attention throughout 25 minutes, it's, a, it's another challenge compared mm. to Liszt. Yeah. yeah, and at least in this case, you you will have those moments of breath between the various movements. Mm-hmm. He doesn't run them on in the way that he doesn't. It's not a mm-hmm. continuous work in that respect. Right. Uh, and and for in in terms of the competition, putting in that Beethoven piece, I know you've touched on it mm. in your previous answer, mm. uh, Finning, but really, if, it, it suggests to me that you have a sense that Beethoven is the epitome of of pianistic writing. Well, it's at the centre of it. It's like as you say, he's between classical, romantic. I just think there's something incredibly honest about Beethoven's music, not only his piano music, but his symphonic music, and it just speaks so directly. Um, and I think there's nowhere to hide in a way. And I think if you can, as I said, if you can convince me with the Beethoven sonata, I yeah. mean, people can, people can walk on and they can play Stravinsky and they can play Prokofiev. They play all loud and very fast and they can play it brilliantly, but it, it often doesn't say a lot. But it's hard to do to get away with that with Beethoven. You've got to make it speak. You've got to make it. It's, there's a sincerity and integrity about the music, um, a simplicity in some ways. And mm. then, you know, it's, 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 there's everything in there. It struck, and I just think it's a good test. Yeah, and it struck me uh, in, in that regard uh, from you as well, see you in, in the comp- in in the in the pieces that you're playing in the in the performance in the Pavilion Theatre, having the Beethoven like that next door to the to the list. In many ways, the list is the flashy piece, uh, and the Beethoven is is a more understated piece. But has I wondered, is that in fact more difficult? If if one is more difficult than the other, are they just different types of difficulty? Uh, Different types of writing and different types of uh, interpretation should be required. A little different, yeah. And from working, having having won the piano competition itself, uh, apart from the opportunities that it, that it has given you, what does uh, winning a competition of that stature, what does it do for your own self-confidence and your own ability? I can see already the modesty is creeping out. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, I can tell you that after winning the prize, I moved to New York and started my studying at Juilliard. And the first thing I did was changing a lot of my styles, my habits, my old habits. So uh, winning competition did nothing with changing all my habits and everything. It was just another day of practicing and it's every day same, just... Every day, yeah. every day, and you just like you yeah. can't play the last note of the list piece until you've played all of the ones preceding it. So you just one day at a time seems yeah. to be what you're saying in that regard. There also is a, one of the, a, another previous winner coming back for a recital, I think, as well. That's Finney. right. Well, last year we had the last edition of the competition in 2022, and we had a wonderful Japanese winner, Yukini mm. Kuroki, a fantastic young pianist. She will come in April to perform at the Royal Irish Academy of Music in the new hall there. One, for, one final I wanted to, I think to ask you yeah. about was the commissions because this is how yes. it links in with your media partner RTE Lyric FM. That's right. So Lyric, uh, RTE Lyric FM very generously commission um, new works for the competition each time from Irish composers uh, and they will be imposed on the candidates. They have to perform one of them with their choice of them. Uh, in the and I've moved that actually from the semi-finals to the mm. quarterfinals of the competition. So it comes and in a bit earlier. So it is, and it gives more prominence because we'll have twenty-eight quarterfinalists. So instead of what used to be twelve uh, performances, we'll have twenty-eight performances of contemporary Irish music at the piano competition. Mm. And Which, indeed, again, say you at your performance in the pavilion, you're uh, you're going to perform the Deirdre Gribbon piece on scene, which was there the year of your yes. competition. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so it's part of that. It's part of that as well. Well, listen. Thanks to both of you for for coming in and for Thank telling you. us a little bit more about that. That's uh, uh, our new artistic director of the Dublin International Piano Competition, Finian Collins, and also Seeyun John, the winner of the 2018 competition. Seeyun.
will perform at a special recital in the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary this Friday, November the 24th. Works by Beethoven, Debussy, Gribben and List on the programme. Full information on that on paviliontheatre.ie and about that and indeed everything happening at the competition on dipc.ie. Now, with four Irish authors on the long list and two making it onto the short list, we certainly have skin in the game when it comes to this year's Booker Prize. The 2023 shortlist is made up of two women and four men, three of whom, as it happens, are called Paul. There is only one British author, one Canadian, two American and, of course, two Irish. Two of the shortlisted books are debut novel. None of the six shortlisted books authors has won before. While the stories and styles of these works are certainly diverse, all are concerned in no small way with the complexities of family relationships. The winner will be announced Sunday, this coming Sunday in London. Before that, Sinead Egan is with me in studio this evening. She's read all six books on the shortlist. And obviously, because we're an Irish station, Sinead, it's hardly surprising. We spoke to Paul Lynch. I've spoken to Paul um, Paul Murray myself recently in recent times as well. It, we have to be unbiased we a do. little bit we um, do. In, in, in some ways. So let us name all six authors in alphabetical order. In alphabetical order. We love a surname. list of the candidates. Yeah. Uh, OK, so Study for Obedience by Sarah Bernstein. If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffrey. This Other Eden by Paul Harding. Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. Western Lane by Chetna Maru. And The Bee Sting by Paul Lynch. It's a very strong, it, it strikes me, a very strong... Sorry, um, The Bee Sting by Paul Murray. Paul Murray, thank you. Yes, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Paul Murray Apologies. is, of course, the the, um, mm. the author of The, of the Bee Sting. Uh, it's a very strong shortlist, it has to be said there. Who are the judges that were tasked with getting it down to six books in the first place? So a new jury is uh, is commissioned every year and typically it's made up of critics and writers and academics and artistic peers. For example, this year, the actors Adoa Ando, and uh, who's Lady Danbury from Bridgerton, mm is uh, on the jury, as is Robert Webb, who we know from his work on Peep Show. So it's a massive undertaking to judge the booker. It's arduous. It's a f- and really, it's a full-time job once the books come in, because if you think about it, it's, you know, it's, it can be over 150 novels at the beginning. And then you're whittling them down to a short list of 12 or, th- or a long list of 12 or 13, and then a short list of six. So if you think about it, this book has to sustain the first read to yeah. get to the long list, the second read to get to the short list, and then the read to get to the winner. So, so the, it's a book that has to sustain rereading. Yeah, it has so to reveal I more. Suppose, yeah, each time they go to it for it to last through, and quite a task they have in the reading of these six. Indeed. Um, you mentioned it in the introduction there, we had this idea that family stories are important yes. here. Are there, are, is that the big theme that's uniting them? Well, it's it's certainly a theme that overlaps, I felt, mm. in, in reading all six of them. So messy families, grief, being an outsider, whether that's by design or not, and lots of examples of kind of bad parenting or an inability to parent because Mm. of circumstance. Uh, They definitely recur in lots of the novels. Uh, But there's also lots of interest and experimentation in terms of form and style in these books. One author does away with the paragraph. I think you know which one. Another one uses the second person narrative in in, in places in in, through entire sections of the book saying you this and you that which you would think would be irritating, but actually it works very well. You, you, you become accustomed to it as a reader. Um, there's a local dialect in some of the stories. There's lo- lack of punctuation. There's a, and lots of very long sentences. Right. 
Okay, right. Well, let's go to the one then that yeah. dispenses with the paragraphs, <laughs> which is Paul Lynch and Prophet Song. Of course, we spoke to Paul a couple of weeks back at the Dublin Book Festival, uh, and um, I must say he he really sold the book well on the night. He, he if if the booker judges were listening, they'll have a hard job arguing against him. It's a compelling read. So we're in dystopian Ireland. This is Prophet Song by Paul Lynch, Ireland with a far right government and uh, a wing of the Gardaí, which is really undertaking a reign of terror among citizens uh, that it sees as non-conforming elements within this new Irish society. The story centres around a scientist called Irish Stack whose trade unionist husband Larry has been taken away by these shady Gardaí called Mm. the GNSB, a kind of secret police. Um, Her life as she knows it is unravelling bit by bit. It's incremental. And all, all the while she's trying to manage her older son who's about to be conscripted into the army. She has a younger teenage daughter. She has a son on the cusp of becoming a teenager and she has a youngest son, our youngest child who is a baby. And crucially, her father has dementia. Yeah. He lives on the other side of the city. These are very normal, everyday mm. situations that she finds her sin, herself in. But she, she doesn't leave even though her sister in Canada is urging her to get out. When you spoke to Paul and this, this appears in the book, he, he, he speaks about the end of the world is a local event. I know. And this line. really yeah. comes across in this novel, especially if you're local to this particular part of the world. Um, it's written in a very literary style. Every section is a single paragraph. He does away yeah. with the paragraph. Yeah. And you would, and when you're reading it, when you start reading it at first, you think this is going to be difficult, but it's not. Um, the effect of this is to kind of overwhelm the sense of the reader, uh, which, is, which is apt for a novel when you think about it, which is about the falling down of society, which yeah. is about war, which is about destruction, which is about losing identity. And um, it's about the million different ways this character's life is unpicked and destroyed. Yeah, and I must say, I, I mentioned it to Paul Lynch on the night as well. It's so, it's such a familiar Dublin, yeah. such a familiar Ireland when he talks about, you know, safe passage from Lansdowne yeah. Road out through the port tunnel. Uh, it was kind of your, your blood chills. So this is a strong contender. It's let's, a really let, strong contender. Let's stick with, with the two Pauls. We'll go to the other Paul, Paul Murray and The Beasting, which is the, the longest book on the... By on a the, long shot. Yeah. yeah, look at it there. Yeah, I have you can my see st- you've, you've all of them sitting here. there. Yeah. It's definitely the one on the bottom <laughs> holding the others up. It's, it's a doorstep. Um, it's the longest novel and it's by far the funniest of the six. Uh, it's the most traditional novel, perhaps. Hmm. Uh, it's a big family saga set in the Midlands in Ireland. It's about the Barnes family. Dickie, who is a car dealer with, a, with sudden qualms about the environment. Imelda is his wife whose lifestyle is being eroded by his unwillingness now to sell cars. Cass is their leaving cert age daughter and PJ is their son. And the story is told from these four perspectives. So you're here, you're experiencing it from each of the, their perspectives. Yeah. And my understanding, Paul Lynch, or Paul Murray, I beg your pardon, is not a, a Midlands man. No, and he's certainly not a teenage girl and he's certainly not a married woman. Well, let me tell you, he convinces in the first part of this novel, which is told from uh, from Cass's uh, perspective. Uh, there's also the presence of Dickie's brother, Frank, who we learn in Cass's part was 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 hot and is dead. <laughs> it's 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 an excellent book, and um, because of the switching perspective and style, you constantly have to rethink what you yeah. gleaned about each person from the previous part. Yeah, so, I'm in the middle of Cass's uh, bit at the Cass's at the, start. T- at the beginning, and I'm really enjoying. It's it. so I'm funny. getting great laughs and kind of sadness within it as well. There's very, oh, yeah. very touching it, pieces. It, it's very poignant, and uh, you'd have to say that each style that Paul Murray. 
uses in this book is execu- executed really, really well. It all convinces. You know, if, if Paul Lynch dispensed with paragraphs, that there's one big long sentence at one point, isn't there? There is. Or, there's, there's, there's a part of it that is reminiscent of Molly Bloom. Uh, this is the part about Imelda, who is uh, the matriarch in this story. And uh, But again, he dispenses with punctuation, but it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It still works. It, it adds to the pace of the novel in a, in a really successful way. Now, they're both successful novels and they both wrote novels, but I think you think both of these would make great screen pieces. I certainly do. And I have to say, I was fantasy casting each of the roles as I was reading <laughs> them. So um, I won't share that detail yeah. with you. Um, the next book that I come to is uh, If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffrey, which is a, a, the first debut novel debut. that I'm going to talk about. And it's linked stories. Now, strictly speaking, the booker is awarded for long form fiction. So fair enough. This is linked yeah. stories. And uh, it's been won by linked stories books before with Bernadine Evaristo, yes, with Girl, yeah. Woman, or Other in 2019. So we get, again, like the Beasting, we get several perspectives from one family. And the first story, this is the this is the interesting stylistic thing, is told in the second person. So it's you did this, you think this, you right. thought this. Uh, which sounds like it might be annoying, but actually, as a reader, you adapt really quickly and it's very effective. I guess if that is the case when when something, when the form fits the story, yeah. it ceases to be a problem because you're, you're caught up in the story. You and understand the form is it. helping that. Absolutely. And it, it does lend something to it. It does feel like this character is kind of having mm. a conversation with himself and, uh, you know, which is something that we all do. It's a very human thing to do. The main character is Trelawney, who's a light-skinned black man from a Jamaican family that have emigrated to Miami. And the first story, he's really grappling with identity. The fact that he's constantly asked, what are you? As opposed to who are you? Yeah. yeah. Um, so identity is a huge theme in this novel, as is rac- racial politics in the United States. It's about being a person who has a foot in two very distinct cultures. And um, through the book, we get his perspective, but we also get his father, Topper, who's uh, and his part is written in the Jamaican vernacular, really successful. Uh, and also his brother, Delano, and his cousin, uh, Kuki. So you've these right. different perspectives within the family, but oh, it right. all really, uh, Trelawney is the linchpin in this. Um, so the the perspectives shift from kind of major to minor character depending on where you are in, or in the, the in, novel. In the story. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to the other Paul yes. who's on the list, Paul Harding. And a Pulitzer Prize winner That's is right. this Paul Harding. Not for this book, but mm. uh, this is this is Paul Harding and this book, This Other Eden, uh, it's inspired by the true events that happened on Malaga Island off the state of Maine uh, in about ni- uh, in the early 1900s when a mixed race community which had lived there for generations was evicted. Uh, this Malaga Island is fictionalised into Apple Island. So in the story, we have a truly mixed race community, families made up of people with African, Irish, Swedish and Native American ancestry. We're told at the start that the community was founded by a freed slave called Benjamin Honey and his Galway girl wife, Patience, after the Civil War. She's repeatedly referred to as a Galway girl. That's not just me. Um, <laughs> there's a handful of families on this island uh, generations later in uh, 1912, but it's decreed that they should be evicted after kind of a, a well-meaning missionary comes along to teach teaching the local schoolhouse and he brings attention to the island. Uh, This is at a time when there's research into eugenics and there's a sense Uh, that these people need to be civilised. And by civilised, they mean evicted off the island and uh, put into asylums in most cases. Um, 
there's incest in this story. There's abuse in this story. Um, and it, it was, I have to say that um, this was actually the only novel that I listened to out of the six, uh, which made it a different experience yes, to, to yeah. reading the others. Um, there are particularly memorable passages about uh, one of the one of the older ladies on the island delousing someone's hair. Who would have thought that that could be written into beautiful uh, prose? Yeah, but well, there indeed you go. It was. And, and the experience of one of the islanders drinking lemonade for the first time, like really beautiful writing. All right. Western Lane then by Chetna Maru. Western Lane by uh, Chetna Maru. Uh, this is the second novel, which is a debut in the shortlist. It's a family story centering on a young teenager called Gopi, who's growing up in London in a Pakistani family. Uh, her her mother has recently died and uh, her older sisters are, and herself are coming to terms with the loss. Uh, they increasingly dedicate themselves to the game of squash, which becomes a really big theme uh, in the book. And um, the plot builds th- towards a big tournament. And in do you need Durham. to be? Do you need to be a no, squash addict too. No, I mean it helps if you can recreate what that sound is yes, in your head yeah. if you've heard it. But uh, she she describes the game of squash and its tactics and its history in a really evocative way. Uh, it's a lovely book. It's a book about rec- repressed grief, about family, about you know, the the inability to parent after losing a partner. It's very, very good. I think I yeah. skipped. Um, I skipped, skipped Sarah Burns. Uh, yeah, study for obedience. Yeah, Sorry. so this is this is by far the most challenging of the six I found. Uh, Sarah Bernstein is a Canadian writer who lives in the Scottish Highlands. It's a book about a woman who moves to the north. Uh, the north is a land we don't mm. know uh, to live with her brother, who she must be servile to. And uh, we understand that she and her brother are outsiders, part of a group of people who've been ostracized and mistreated within this particular community. And we understand that they're Jewish. Uh, which is very important to the plot. Um, they struggle with the local language, they're mistrusted and she is blamed for the unexplained uh, deaths of animals in the community and this is something that somehow she must atone for. It's set in the present day but it also feels really timeless. It's a very unusual yeah. book. Uh, it's the shortest of the novels and uh, yet for all that it's it's a very compelling book if not terribly plot driven. It's sinister, it builds there are no straightforward now, answers. All right. Now you have to be objective in I this. I do. <laughs> Uh, who do you think? Who do you think is in, is going to be in that final shake-up? Let's get it down to maybe two or three. Okay, I think I do think that the two Irish books are going to be in the final shake-up. Mm. I'm not. I'm not just saying that. I mean, if you look at odds, uh, the, you know, the betting odds and so forth. These these two the, these two novels, The Beasting and uh, Prophet Song, are featuring very strongly. But it's not just that. Like beyond that. I think they really could win deservedly because they're very accomplished novels and they have big things to say about the modern world. And I think that's kind of that, that's so that's important. A big thing, but yeah. crucially, these these are two books that would that would reward rereading. Like they, you you get more okay. from them as you go back from, back to them. There's a lot of detail there. I, would you have one in your head if it wasn't one of the Irish ones? Or? I would. I would. I would. I would think a little bit about Study for Obedience just because it is such an oblique novel and and yet so detailed. I do think that it would reveal more on rereadings. And remember, this is. This, yeah. this winner will be read at least three times, three times by the yeah, judges. Yeah. And yeah. that's the one that you said was the most challenging read. For sure. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Of, of all of them. Of course, we could have two Pauls winning it. You mentioned Bernadine Avaristo, who, uh, who, Avaristo, who won the joint, joint winner with it's Margaret It's happened Adwin. before. Two Irish Pauls winning would, be, it would be make lovely. us all very happy. It would be happy. a sixth Irish winner. Wouldn't that <laughs> yeah. be lovely? It would be quite extraordinary. Well, listen, good luck to all involved. But obviously, our fingers are crossed for both Pauls and hopefully it might fall our way. That's uh, Sinead Egan speaking to us about the Booker Prize. The winner of the Booker Prize will be announced at the ceremony in London, the, London rather, this coming Sunday evening.
After a three-year hiatus, Fargo's anticipated return in season five, starring Juno Temple, John Hammond, Jennifer Jason Lee, is hailed as a darkly funny and a return to peak form. This anthology series, inspired, of course, by the Coen Brothers' 1996 film, maintains its signature mix of ordinary individuals in extraordinary situations, hapless criminals, a Midwestern setting, shocking black humour, and the most difficult difficult accent in the world. Season five, (laughs) set in Minnesota circa 2019, stars Juno Temple as the seemingly mild-mannered Dot Lion, whose past resurfaces when she confronts armed kidnappers. She's pursued by a sheriff and preacher, Roy Tillman, played by John Hamm, and his son, Gator, played by Joe Carey. Dot's actions attract the attention of the North Dakota uh, deputies. John McGuire has yeah. been watching season five Massive of fan. Fargo. I have to say, John, I, and, and I'm not going back a bit now, I remember hearing when they said oh, they're going to make tele- Fargo into a television series, oh, yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, there what was would you just leave Who's it alone, Noah please? What's he He at? came out of nowhere. He worked Bones. on Bones, which <laughs> yeah. was a kind of a medical yeah. uh, criminal drama. In 2013, he said, I'm going to turn the Coen brothers' most beloved film, the one that won them their first Oscar and an Oscar for Francis McDormand. And I'm going to generate this wider Fargo universe where I'm going to create a new story based, you know, on mm. the rhythms and tones and themes that the Coens had explored. Everybody was up in arms. Thought, what are you doing? Leave and then the, alone. F- the, f- the thing came out and it was a triumph. Was, <laughs> it turned out to be closely hewn to the source material, but its own distinctive thing. Yeah. Who and was that? Who was it? Who were they? Because the each series season, is a totally new story. Totally new anthology. Yeah. And the first season was the one with... Uh, Martin, Martin Freeman, Martin Freeman yeah. as the insurance agent and Billy Bob Thornton, never better Billy Bob yeah, Thornton Billy as Lorne Malvo, yeah. this kind of agent of evil who of chaos and evil who descends on this small mid, Midwestern town in Minnesota and start, everybody starts dying. And Freeman was this character caught yeah. up in the middle of it. And, and you know, and, and, that, and that was such, it was a big success and people went, well, that really worked. And then I must say my blood froze again when I you're going to do it again? Surely yeah, lightning can't strike the Season twice. two was really good too. That was the one with Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons, two otherwise ordinary, decent, everyday people who did a stupid, bad thing and they get ensnared by the matriarch yeah. of a local crime family played by Gene Smart. And as the show has progressed, Holly has expanded this inspiration to what we might call the wider Cohen universe. He's added these recognisable touches of from almost every film yeah. the Cones have ever made. So you've got character types, character names, costume props. There so, are references but they, it fits I don't know yeah. how he does it because the, yeah. it never becomes pastiche but Sean, season, that's the thing season it five isn't referring, together it isn't as if these seasons that we have characters that, that flit in and out that have been in previous seasons no we, they're it all is a totally, straight story yeah. totally totally it's, it's standalone so well, wh- where are we at in season five well see uh, first a brief mention for season four which I loved but many people didn't and it was seen as a dip in form this is the story where they skip back to the 1950s and was heavily influenced by Miller's Crossing the right. Brothers yeah, classic yeah. Miller's Crossing. So that was three years ago and people are anticipating something like that. It's not. Mm. This season, season five, is the Fargoiest of all the Fargos. This is the one where you literally have the story as it was in 1997 with Francis McDormand. And it 
that, uh, you know, it opens with the usual true story thing. This is a true story. It's true that it is a story, but they're not true stories. And you get that we've changed the names to protect the survivors out of respect for the dead. We've kept everything as it was. That's the same. Another little legend. Yeah. And then you get a third legend, which describes Minnesota nice, which is this expression that they have around this part, North Dakota, Minnesota, that frozen wasteland, mm. where people are... Uh, an aggressively pleasant demeanor, often forced, is the is the, and that just sets the tone. That's there from the first episode. So we cold open on a meeting in Scandia, which is the little a, town a, a, a in two thousand and nineteen. A parent teacher meeting that has turned into a riot. Now, <laughs> Uh, honestly, watching the first thought I had was, this is a Trump show. This yeah. is a show about the Trump era. Yeah. People are just pucking their heads off each other. And we meet uh, Juno Temple's Dot. She's this uh, mild, ordinary, everyday yeah. housewife, but she's got a taser in her bag. She sticks it in a cop's neck, knocks him out, and she's arrested. I would say I was at a parent-teacher meeting today. There was no riot. There was no riot. <laughs> so there is, there is a this. And let's listen to what happens. Oh, yeah, this, so is, she good. Said, this is superb. She, sent, she, she is sent just off to pre- she, she goes in to the local she's brought, brought in by the local police and then her husband Wayne played it's Juno Temple playing Dot brilliantly here uh, her husband Wayne is played by David uh, Rystal and he is picking her up in the in the car bailed after, her out yeah, yeah bailed her he has out, bailed yeah. her out and he's got news about her mother-in-law has a little surprise party ready for them oh jeez huh looks like you had a heck of a time of it last school board meeting I ever do oh, here Gosh, they put those cuffs on so tight. Yeah. How come you look so nice? Oh, going to Mom's for the uh, Christmas card deal. Tonight? Yeah. Scotty's there already. Went with Jerome, her major domo. Uh, look at me. I've been in the Hoosgau. I got lice, possibly. Yeah, well, believe you me, I asked if we could move it, but you know Mom. What I got your frock? And hair stuff in the car. I just scooped all your makeup into a bag. Except the bronzer on account of you said it gives you hives. Mm. Look, we're in this reno today. Lots and lots of leg room. Okay then. Yeah, here you go. Okay. All right. There yeah. you go. That Great is team. Juno Temple is dot. And in just before that, in it, Sean, she's asking when she's been arrested by Officer Olmsted, who's Risha Morjani, mm. who plays the kind of uh, Francis McDormand character yeah. here. Uh, she's asking about uh, the fingerprints and the photographs and national databases and where does this information go? She's obviously got something to hide. Yeah, but she's she's she's. I think some one of the characters refers to at one point that like, this is a wolf uh, in sheep's clothing because she looks so innocent. But yeah, uh, but she yeah, shortly to... becomes a wolf in yeah. wolf's clothing. Thing yeah. because this woman has talents. I don't know where she learned them. That's the mystery of the show. Yeah. How did she get to become, yeah. how did she learn how to escape the but two kidnappers that come after her, the people that are looking for her? How has she kept you, herself you off the radar? In, you said going into uh, talk about season five that it is the Fargoiest yeah. of, of Fargo. It's the closest to I it, mean, yeah. The, the accent is from the minute she opens her mouth, particularly yeah, I love it, yeah. her. I love Juno it. But Temple. It's, it's not just accent, it's also oh, it's personality, attitude. it's yeah. attitude. It's it's this kind of the Minnesota nice. It is this kind of front that they put on where they, they 
you know, and the language and the way she expresses herself and the kind of manners that they have. Yeah. But the one that, uh, when we meet uh, Lorraine Leon, who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee, I mean, the cast is superb here as oh, well, Sean. Yeah, so she's this vicious bi- yeah. billionaire businesswoman who's got a, a, a lawyer, a cowboy type with a disturbingly skin-toned uh, eye patch uh, named Danish Graves. The names are perfect. Pure Cohen brothers. He's played by the two comedian Dave Foley. And the two of them get on to Dot. They've always disliked her and now they're on to her. They know there's something up. Yeah. So that's more or less episode one. Episode two, we meet John Hamm's character. A little flash of John Hamm once or twice in episode little flash, one. Little flash, little flashbacks. And that's what, uh, that's what uh, Hawley is doing when he's, when he's taken off the Coens. He's, he's introducing these. And because... Uh, Holly has 10 hours to play with. The Coens have two. Mm. So Holly's able to bring in all of this kind of character stuff, all of this location stuff, but also dreams and fantasies. And we get deeper into that, into the minds of the characters Mm. because he's got the space to play with. Yeah, well, let's have a listen to John Hamm then as Sheriff Tillman and his very progressive views on This is pure Trump, pure Trump. It's absolutely classic. I was sheriff of this county when I was 25. Hard to believe. Grandfather was a sheriff, father too. Ranchers all, working the land through times flush and fallow. There's a natural order of things. We know it in our bones. Jesus was a man, not some bearded lady. And just as water flows downhill, a husband is head of his household. Under him, the woman abides. She holds her virtue close until that matrimonial threshold is crossed and then she opens to it as the flower opens to the sun. There you go. That's and on it goes, yeah. <laughs> John on goes. Now, Roy, Roy Tillman is yeah. chasing Dot for reasons that are his own to reveal, but he is in turn then being chased by the FBI who turn up one afternoon and ask him why as sheriff of the county. He's not actually yeah. enforcing any of the laws. And... Uh, He's involved in all sorts of crazy schemes, including his father-in-law's crackpot militia, who's preparing to overthrow the government. One other character I want to mention that you you touched on is the the uh, the officer um, officer Olmstead, Olmstead, played by Risha Morjani. Yeah, she's got that uh, Frances McDormand thing where she's just kind of observing these crazy people. Mm. The, the theme of the show really is what is a police? What are they for? What do they do? And it's not just represented by Officer Tillman or by Roy Tillman and by Officer Olmstead and or indeed the two FBI characters that pop up now and again. It's really about what is law enforcement? What are laws yeah. and why do we enforce them? But uh, Olmstead has, uh, she hasn't really fully developed yet as a character but you just know there's a moment yeah. coming because you, of what all the other chaos that's going on. You've watched She's four, the straight line you've right through. John, there are ten in total, is it? Yeah. Ten in total, fifty Can minutes or so. I've watched four. I'll watch. I I know that once I get to see them, Sean, I'm just going to eat them up. I know I'm setting aside the six hours I'm going to need because right. really and truly, this is a. Uh, people are talking yeah. about a return to form. It never dipped for me, but I've been really looking forward All to right. this. It sounds you're selling it to everybody in the audience. Well, I hope tonight, so. It's John. worth it. Absolutely worth John it. John McGuire speaking to us about Fargo season five, which is available on Prime Video from tomorrow. First Frames is a short film scheme funded by Dunleary Rathdown County Council. It supports emerging filmmakers who are looking to develop ambitious and creative short films. This year's recipients of the scheme are two of Ireland's most exciting new voices in Irish film industry, Gemma Cray, a regular on this show, and Derek Ugochukwo. Their films, Nede and Conveyance, explore 
everything from gender-based violence to the horrors of home ownership. Delighted to be joined by both Derek and Gemma in studio uh, this evening. And peculiar for you, Gemma, I'm supposed, supposed to be on the other side yeah. of the of the filmmaker um, because you're normally a, a film reviewer with us. Your, your own story uh, in and around the property market, rife for satire, I would have thought, is that market? Oh, yeah, it was. Um, it's, a, it's a young couple who are struggling with um, living separately. Uh, Chrissy and um, uh, Chrissy and Patrick Martins, uh, they play this young couple that are kind of mismatched in many ways. And, you know, they're living independently. She has a terrible run in with like a, a flatmate of his and, and they're really trying to find their ground why looking for a place to, to buy and they find this beautiful apartment but it's too good to be true. Yeah, man. And if it's if, because they make an offer below asking and it's accepted within 30 seconds. So if that's going on, there's something wrong if the, if, if, if the property is going to be like that. It's not too long before they find out that there are other people or other entities in the in the apartment with them. Yeah, poor Brian, um, played by Patrick Martins. He um, He's the one who's being haunted and uh, and Suzanne, his partner, played by Chrissy Cronin, she doesn't quite believe him because mm. she's too practical. You know, he's someone who's really into his spiritual stuff. He has he listens to the White Witch podcast. He loves his spooky books, <laughs> and she thinks he's kind of imagining it all for the yeah. for very beginning. However. Bad and all as it might be to be living in a haunted house, there are worse things, as we will hear in this clip of conversation between uh, Suzanne and Brian, essentially here. See? I told you, there's no... F. Stop. We're not leaving. What's out there is worse. Real estate agents? What? Suzanne's mother? Perverts. <gasps> Come on. So there we get it. Spooky goings on in the apartment. I should have explained that they're, they're playing on the Ouija board before that and they want the message to be sent to them. And F, U are the first two letters that are spelled out. We kind of know what the entity in the house is telling them to do. Uh, Derek, your film then uh, is an altogether, Nede is the title of, of the film. Yes. This is an altogether different prospect, treating a very serious and unfortunately very timely topic. Yes, um, Nade is a short crime thriller about a teenage TikToker who tells the story of her hectic life and aspirations while walking her dog against the backdrop of a menacing industrial landscape. It stars um, Florence and De Bambo uh, in the lead role of mm. Naomi alongside Ashonye, Michelle Raka, Steve Hartland, Flavia Zell and Shane Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Flavio Zell plays this character of Orla. Florence, as you say, plays the character of Naomi. They're great yes. buddies. Yes, they, the chemistry was instant when we had the audition with them. Like, it was just, they made it so easy to film. Uh, we were having so much fun every day on set. Even when we met for our showcase, they were just like instantly gelling. Well, let's listen to the, the moment when the characters are talking about the nature of the gel between them, which is, as you say, very much there between the actors as well. Flavia Zell as Orla and Florence Adebambo as uh, Naomi. 
I told Orla, I said, once I make it on TikTok, you'll be my manager. And we'll move to London. Get one of them city apartments. Do you know the ones we see all them beautiful people jogging down the bridge? <laughs> we'll be proper fit, won't we? Blend right in. <laughs> Figgy Rose. With Orla, I learned how to laugh. With Orla, I forgot all about anger. But as time passes, that anger resurfaces to remind me just how well it lives under my skin. And that's uh, Florence de Bambo is the the main voice that we heard there as Naomi Flavia Zell in Derek Kuchoko's film Nede. It's a very serious topic um, because it's it's essentially dealing with violence against women. That's what's at the yes. heart of your of the story that you're telling, Derek. To get that to pack that into what is it a thirteen or a fourteen minute minutes. piece, twelve minute piece? Yeah. How, how difficult was it to get to the essence of it uh, in that short a time? Yeah. Um, we we like we, we got very lucky to be able to get such funding from Dunleary um, Ratdown County Council as part of the DLR First mm. Frame Scheme, uh, supported by IEDT, of course. Um, when we had the script initially, like I always knew that the themes of this film was going to be about grief and an innate desire for justice um, around this topic of crime, um, violence against women, and how to tell that story changing the tone from, you know, using a protagonist like Naomi, who is so flawed and complex and talking about things about TikTok and things like that, mm. but just to show that looks can be deceiving in such a real societal issue. Uh, so I wanted to tell the stories, tell the story with those issues in mind. And I guess, uh, Gemma, you have that, there, there is a satirical element to the whole uh, property market and that aspect in your film as well. They often say, I, I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't tell you a short story. I didn't have time to make it a short story. How difficult was it for you to get that element of satire and yet make the serious point within it as well in such a short space of time? Um, it was, well, we were very lucky that we had um, a really great uh, working with um, um, DLR first frame schemes and the people manning it. Um, they helped uh um, like they appointed Sarah Gunn to help me edit it down because it was a little bit too big um, to shoot as it was. I think like honing the script was really interesting. Mm. And then I think what was important for me as well is like it, it's comedy horror. It's a, it's a strange tone to keep balance. Yes, yeah. So I really wanted to keep the couple's relationship at the crux of the film. And sometimes it might be fun to put in like a silly scene or it, it was always about kind of peering that back when, you know, your your pen would run away with you and you'd get a bit silly sometimes. <laughs> yes. And have we, will we get a chance to see them or what? where are they available to us? Um, right now, they're just both of our films are just starting their festival journey. So we, I presume, we will have a few applications, yeah. and we have to stay stoned until we know. But like, right. we don't okay. know yet, and, and keep our premieres. That that they will come in time. Hopefully, there might be longs that will grow out of these shorts for sure. But thank you both for coming into us this evening, Gemma Cray and Derek Okachoko, talking to us there about the first frame short film scheme. And that is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Niall Fitzmaurice was the researcher, Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator, and sound supervision this evening was by Harry Buckles. I will speak to you once again tomorrow night at seven o'clock here on RT Radio One. John Creedon will be with you after the news.